Oh my god, what am I doing? Hello, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree, or interview guest today is Rod Graham. I'll have him introduce himself in a minute. This is a special conversation because I believe that I am talking to someone who I discovered on Twitter. The, the, this is the person that I have spoken to um, the most, who I've disagreed with the most, uh, because I very strongly <laughs> disagree with a lot of what he says. But the purpose of this conversation is to make sure that I am actually understanding uh, where he is coming from pretty clearly. Um, and it's, I already said this on Twitter, I asked people to give some comments, I um, wanted it to be a conversation rather than a debate. So there will be, I'm guessing, friendly disagreements, I'm not sure. Um, it's a good thing, especially in, I think, in these times where we tend to caricature people and you forget that there's an actual person with their own story behind them and why they think what they think. So it's good to have them express themselves in their own words rather than just rebutting your understanding of their argument. So I will have Rod introduce himself right now. Okay, well, Desiree, thanks for having me. Um, and uh, I appreciate uh, you um, having these kinds of dialogues. I, I also think that they are important. So, yeah, my name is uh, Roderick Graham. I am uh, an associate professor at a university in Virginia called Old Dominion University. And um, my research is really in cybercrime, and I teach research methods, and sometimes I teach uh, a class on race. But I think the, the, what's happened over the past year or so is um, after getting tenure, I started becoming more public as a uh, communicator. And uh, it just so happens that this was during the era of critical race theory and George Floyd and all this stuff. And so um, I started speaking out uh, from my perspective as, a, as an academic. And um, that's probably how we ended up crossing paths. Okay, um, that's a good point. So I was thinking to specifically speak about group identity, um, censorship, and uh, the economics, because those are the, the topics that I came up in my head when I thought about asking you to do an interview, and especially um, to talk about the group identity stuff, um, because I'm someone who is not from the United States, so a lot of the conversation in the U.S. is always race-centered, and I've joined that conversation mostly due to being annoyed by not being able to not join it. So like encountering people who, yeah, one of my primary motivators for starting to think and talk about this stuff was encountering people who expected me to think a certain way because I'm black, because of how I look. So I don't identify with being black, but at the same time I am. So even though I might not primarily have that thought in my head, I mean, like, I acknowledge that I never really had a problem saying that I'm black. I mean, I don't. But when I came to the U.S., I realized that having that identity is, like, imbued with, like, a whole set of other things that I'm not used to in terms of how I might see the world versus how the world sees me. So versus a, a physical, versus, like, a physical description, it's... Um, 
what are my takes on some moral issues in society? And I found that line being drawn annoying. <laughs> I guess I found it annoying. More By than other black folk that. telling you, you know, what are you talking about? Why are you saying this as a black person? Um, not other black folk, just anybody. So both black folk and just people in the U.S. in general. I've, I've had it from black folk, as you put it, from white folk, from international people who are, I think this guy was from uh, either Venezuela or Mexico who heard the, the rhetoric, um, who were both immigrants, just from people who are, who are in US politics. Um, so I guess that's the first thing I, I wanna talk about because you, you say very often, and this is me saying what you say, you tell me what you say after I'm done saying what I think you say. That group identity is a, uh, um, really, really important, and for me, it shouldn't be, and it's not. But if everyone else is saying that it is in society, then you have to respond in that way. Mm. Well, it is important for me. Uh, um, I don't. I don't know if I would impose that view on others. So, if someone is doesn't get that sense of belonging by imagining themselves as a part of. Uh, in my case, the Black American community, I think that's fine. Um, but but yeah, for me, it, it matters quite a bit. It um, it provides meaning. It grounds me in a history, um, a, a good and bad history, but it grounds me. And um, I I think it's a wonderful thing. I, I don't. In fact, I would say, you know, I've I've heard some psychologists make this point, and I'll probably garble it a little bit. But in order to um, participate in wider society, you have to have some kind of home base that makes you comfortable, that provides meaning in your life. And so most people think that group identity is divisive. I don't. I, I think that, it, that if you feel comfortable uh, in your home base, then you're more likely to go out and venture out and, and uh, meet other people. Uh, so, you know, but if you don't feel, I mean, this is amazing. I, I'm not sure why someone would want to impose that view on you. Um, uh, on a personal level, politically, I think it's, uh, it's problematic, actually, I do. But at an individual level, if someone says, hey, uh, you know, I don't identify with the Chinese-American community, then great. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, that, that's my take on it. I mean, that's a great take. And it's funny that you say that because that's not at all what I hear. So what you just said makes perfect sense. And I agree with you. I see absolutely nothing wrong with Black Americans wanting to have a sense of identity or some of them wanting to do that or any other group of people. And if they get their sense of belonging from that, basically everything you just said is fine to me. Um, however, I guess I first, okay. I don't see in conversation people limiting that identity to Black Americans, even if that's what you just said. People just say Black, which includes people like me or anybody else. And I also don't perceive that identity as being um, something on the personal level, but as being imposed in terms of, so if I go, I mean, now they're starting to say capitalize the, the word black, for example, which I never used to do. And if I go to apply for something out there in the world, they're not distinguishing between black American and other black people. They just say black. But what they tend to mean, I think, is the more black American point of view because the black American point of view is one that would even make that 
distinction in the first place. Actually, it's American, not just Black American. Um, so a great example of this, which I've brought up a few times before, is fresh to the United States when I saw those categories, like without thinking, without knowing anything about the politics, I would always put other <laughs> and put West Indian, which to me has nothing to do with race. So I, what I'm trying to say is, to respond to what you just said, that makes perfect sense. However, when you're actually out there in the world, it does not seem like it's limited, that that sense of belonging is not imposing um, and also is not limited to just Black Americans, um, but Black encompassing more than just that, even though it might mean uh, Black Americans. I'm actually going to restate that. Uh, elaborate a bit more on what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is that you're saying that it's about Black Americans. However, I think that I hear you saying that saying that you're Black, not Black American, when you're talking about racial issues. So I, I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. It is the case that, uh, uh, from my point of view, I'm always thinking in terms of Black American um, um, and not. Uh, West African immigrants or or people from uh, the West Indies is, is that how you would is that, okay West Indian um, Caribbean uh, Caribbean yep 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 um, even people from South America uh, have some African ancestry and and we categorize them as black often and um, uh, you're correct about that there's a there's something here I guess I should I should try and contextualize it because uh, there's something here that there's a difference between you know, like what I may think at an individual level and what identity might mean to me, but also the, what the state has done historically. So the argument that you're making about lumping all people of the same color into the same group when in actually they're different cultures has been made by others in the past in the United States. And um, uh, the state, I'm saying the state, the federal government has, has actually corrected that in a lot of ways. So it used to be just Asian but that's not what we've got now. You can uh, you can select a Japanese American or Korean American, uh, and instead of doing it racially or by color, they're doing it by by culture. And then of course you got the other if you don't identify with any of those things. And so it might be that that over time, as more and more um, non-native blacks uh, become more prominent in American society or anywhere, uh, then the the state will have to take that into account. So that that those forms you fill out have a kind of a bean counting uh, importance. Uh, if you're dealing with policy, you want to know, you know, what different racial groups are doing. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure how you feel about that, but certainly, but I see racial inequalities, and the only way to see those is by taking the counts. So, so as we get more people uh, who are non-native blacks into the United States, we'll have to start counting them too. Okay. So it sounds as if we're agreeing with each other. And then something else you, you mentioned in your, in your first response was um, the difference between the personal level uh, versus politically. And you said that you, you could see that being an issue. Um, could you explain what you meant by just by that? Sure. So there's a kind of, um, with all groups, so we're talking about race here, but I think it's at a human level, people identify with something. And so right. what happens is when you when you identify and you imagine that people are in that group with you and then you see them maybe doing something that you think hurts the group, you're going to label them as a, a Quisling for, for those World War II buffs or a Benedict Arnold, 
is American uh, thing, or an Uncle Tom, which I'm sure everyone has heard. But it's the same dynamic. You think that a, a person is a part of your group, you imagine that, and then they're arguing for things that you think hurt your group, and, and so you get you get angry. Now, now that's a, I would say that that's a logical thing to do because you're imagining, and this is what I do. I mean, this is me self-disclosing here. I don't, I don't have any problem saying this. I imagine that I will always be there for that other black American. So let's say that black American leaves the neighborhood and goes off and tries to do well. And, you know, for some reason it doesn't work. Well, fine. You're not a doctor, but I still accept you. And let's go out and have a barbecue. Right. And so that kind of uh, benefit of the doubt in helping, I want to extend that. And I imagine another black American will extend that to me. That doesn't always happen. But if you if you if you start that way, then it is a logical conclusion to be upset when you see a black conservative commentator say there's something wrong with the black community and and reject policies that you think would help the black community. So th there is a kind of visceral emotional response, which I do have. Um, but it's irrational for the reasons that you point out. I mean, if a person doesn't identify with that group or if they have some real reasons for not supporting policies that most black folk uh, have, then they're not Uncle Tom's. They just really think this way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's that's the political part of it. Uh, I, I'm very upset, actually, when I see a lot of people of color, but I'm talking more about black Americans, present themselves as representing what most you know, the majority of black Americans think. And people push back on that and say, what do you mean more the majority of black Americans? Everyone's different. That is true. But if you look at surveys about racism or discrimination or job discrimination, what, what have you, you'll get some commonalities. Most black folk think that they have been discriminated against. Most black folk imagine that or, or support policies that would deal with those issues. So when you get a, a black commentator who in some ways trades his... Uh, his blackness, uh, I don't know, trading sounds kind of bad, but, um, but they're, they're, they're seen as an expert on blackness because they are black, yet they're arguing for things that most black people reject. I find that problematic because what ends up happening is you have a lot of people who have some views about the cultural inferiority of black folk, but they may not express them. Um, very few people are, are racist in, in this biological, I hate black sense. But a lot of black, a lot of people think that um, black folks' culture is a problem. And they don't want to just come out and say that. But when they hear a black commentator say that, then they can say, ah, okay, I'm not racist. He says it, you know, Glenn Lowry says it, you know, Thomas Sowell says it, uh, and so I'm okay. And, and that, that's a problem, because that person will then vote against policies that I know as an academic will help black people. Okay. Um, how does someone who is a black American, who may have conservative viewpoints, express those viewpoints? Well, I guess, how do they express those viewpoints while not being accused of representing the views of the majority of black people? Because they still have their viewpoint. And yes, they might not represent the views of the majority of black people. So how would they go about expressing their opinion while 
not, I guess, offending someone who has your perspective. They can't, but they shouldn't worry about my perspective. Just be you. Like, my, my opinion is a more visceral one, and I have to kind of bottle that um, because, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a logical thing, but it's irrational, uh, really. I mean, I mean why, would, why should I expect everyone to think like me? I, I shouldn't uh, about these issues. So um, if someone legitimately comes to their conclusion, and I think most of them do, um, then, you know, they, they, should, they should be themselves. There are some concerns on, a, on an academic level, though. Right. So sometimes I see conservatives who generate these ideas and they're not grounded in any evidence. It's a it's a kind of a a kind of a personal thing, you know, or maybe, you know, they they they, they write essays and whatnot. And, you know, people will take those as equal to what a a black academic who spent years studying things, uh, uh, th they'll put them on the same level. That's a problem. Um, I, I, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, people tend to choose the things that they like and then follow them. But when I'm on Twitter and I'm trying to comment on things and I say, well, this study shows this, this study shows this, this study shows this, then I'll get back at me. Well, how about what Coleman Hughes says? I don't know what to do with that. I mean, great, great guy, very, very smart, but I just don't see that as equal to what this academic X has said about uh, racism in the United States. Um, what to do about that? I don't know. But to answer your point, to answer your question clearly, don't do anything. Just continue to push your ideas. Put your ideas out there in the marketplace, and um, people hate me. I've gotten hate mail about talking about uh, racism, so. I, you know, there's nothing you can really do about that. And I'm sure you'll get some too, if you haven't already. Some kind yeah. of- yeah. yeah, I mean, I get hit email. No one has my like actual address, but like people do say things to me. Um, so this is something that we have talked about uh, on Twitter, I, I've responded to. Um, so are you saying, and I, I believe I disagree, but are you saying that the way to judge whether or not evidence exists for a certain claim is looking through the academic literature um, and taking the word of someone who has studied a topic extensively versus uh, examining the actual claims that someone is saying. Uh, yes, in a way, you, you, you were saying that I was uh, uh, committing the, what is it called, the bandwagon fallacy or, or something like, or uh, arguing from authority, this type of thing. That's what um, I had said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is outside, look, okay, in a formal debate structure or you're looking at some kind of, you know, single claim, you're absolutely right. You, you can't just say something is right because other people said it or a lot of people said it. That, that's, that's true. But in our everyday life context, I mean, it's ridiculous. And I think I said this is nonsense or absurd or something. Because, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to examine every claim. I mean, if, if, a, if, a, if, my, if, doctors say, if a doctor says, well, you know, we kind of looked at this and, you know, there's some disagreement. But I think, you know, most doctors say you should take this approach. Am I really going to say, all right, you know, I, I'm going to examine the one claim versus the nine here. No, I'm going to assume our institutions work properly. Uh, and 
bet on the people who, the nine people who said yes and hope they're right. They could be wrong. You know, they, they really could be. Um, uh, to put it more in the race context, Thomas Sowell argues that it's culture that matters the most. Okay. Um, and what people of color need to do, he's talking black Americans. I, I wish I knew more about uh, things in the UK. Maybe you can tell me after I finish this little spiel here. But Thomas, I'm a, uh, from Jamaica. I, I don't know anything about the UK. Just I'm sorry. I, I thought I, it's okay. <laughs> I'm no, it's sorry. okay. It's okay. Um, yeah. So the context is very different. Okay. All right. So then forget it. Then. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, so he, he says, all right, these racial disparities you see between black and white, they're really about the cultural habits that have uh, taken hold uh, because of welfare and over time and uh, he's not a racist. He's just saying that black folk need to change those those uh, cultural habits and, and they'll be equal to whites or very similar over time. OK. He's one person who's makes some make some claims. Now, I could go and pick through all of what Thomas Sowell is saying and say, well, this point is this. This point is that. Uh, or or I can say, all right, here are these nine or ten academics who've gone through the peer review process, who've who've discuss things with other academics and it's across fields and across uh, across disciplines and across methods whether it be interviewing people or using hard data and they come to a different conclusion they say that when you change the policies it will impact what happens to people of color it is true that culture matters we're not going to be stupid here and say it doesn't matter but culture is a response to something and if you never change the environment that people live in they're going to it's not going to matter you know, and and so I take that view, uh, and and I think that's a reasonable thing to do outside of a formal debate, right? Uh, I mean, uh, or or if I'm sitting down writing a research paper, you're absolutely right. I I can't just say, well, a lot of people said it, boom. But even you, actually, I'm sure you're a very educated person. You were asked to do uh, some kind of lit review <laughs> before you wrote your research paper or something, and you do that because you want to know what the general consensus is and then you build on that so you know that, that's kind of long-winded thing there but um yeah yeah it's 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 crazy um the undue influence that black conservatives have for some folks it's actually kind of okay. sad i'm sorry go ahead don't no, forget it go ahead no um i just don't want to lose um where we're coming from because you i was talking about um evidence for arguments, and then you went to a very specific issue about the, the cultural thing. Um, but I was more focusing on the, the evidence for argument. You just said something, um, let me try to get back. Oh, about the literature review. So I would still, in writing a literature review, like when you write a literature review, you're posting what the author said and why they said it just in brief form. So you're still actually examining the arguments. Even if you're you're not going um, in detail, you're not just picking people because they have studied something a lot. You're looking at their claims. So I guess we don't need to go into it. I just wanted to understand. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure we just disagree on this, but I just wanted to understand um, uh, what you were what you were saying saying where you were coming from. But could you go could ahead you if you remember what you were just about to say? You're about to go on know. another train of thought about concert, black conservatives, something about that. Oh no, that's it. But but you're right. I mean, look, like all these um, 
these sort of rules of identifying uh, proper arguments and uh, that that makes that makes total sense. There's nothing uh, wrong with that. And in fact, uh, you I have to teach that actually uh, in my research class that you know you have to look at the premise and the conclusion and make sure it necessarily follows and all these things. I mean, I I, I get that, and you're absolutely right. Um, I'm I'm just questioning the imposition of that onto the onto the everyday world. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I think that's a that's a tool used by folks who sometimes want to push back against social justice, right? So they'll 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 find some um, contradiction, some minor contradiction in the general idea, and then they'll say, "Well, okay, be, because of this fallacy, then okay, this whole thing is this whole thing is wrong," or something like that. And 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 I'm seeing this a lot. And so so maybe when you posted that, I was like, ah, ah, I was just exasperated. Right. Maybe that's a way of, of, of thinking about it. So. OK, so. You're saying that it's been imposed on everyday reality, which is looking for the specific claims and whether or not they are true versus looking at the, at the amount of research done by some expert on a topic. So. I just, I just want to clarify, you're saying that, yes, the other argument might be true, but in everyday conversation, you have to make a shortcut um, and look at how much an author may have studied something to say whether or not what they're saying has merit, because that, that is what I'm hearing, which I strongly disagree with, but I just want to make sure I'm actually hearing um, correctly. Um, kind of. I mean, look, uh, we, we had this whole coronavirus thing, and I'm sorry, everyone doesn't agree that we need to wear masks. Um, right. So what do you do in that situation? Do you, do, you, do you go with what people who have gone through our institutions have decided as a collective that is the right way, knowing that it could be wrong, but you have to kind of because science is always contingent, right? So, so you, it, it could be wrong, but, but these folks have done what we as a society thinks we need to do. Not only have they gone through the institutions, but they're using the legitimate research methods to come to their conclusions. Okay, so they're there for that reason. They're there for that shortcut. So what, what tends to happen is um, someone doesn't like what's going on in those institutions. They don't like the conclusions. So then they'll they'll find one person that that happens to agree with them, and then equate those two things. And I think that that is that is uh, incorrect. It doesn't mean that uh, someone can't sit down on their own and say, okay, I'm going to examine um, the claims made by this person, and um, you know just invest that time in understanding whether it's correct or not, and then go looking at this and look at the data and all this stuff. Yes, that, that's done all the time. But I'm just saying in everyday life, I don't think that that's reasonable. Now, some people special like you may do that, but I don't, I don't, I don't think it's reasonable. And I think that what's happening is people are, are intentionally trying to, trying to do that because they don't like the conclusions that are drawn. Okay, so if all those societies set up institutions to do something right, how would anyone ever find out that institutions might be doing it wrong and coming to the wrong conclusions because their methodology is wrong, for example, if they don't 
make that question and outside of those institutions bring arguments against those institutions? Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good question. I, I think depending on the institution, uh, then if that institution continues to fail, then there will be changes. So it depends. So if uh, if society thinks police the police are not doing what they should do, then they have a job of, pro of protecting uh, the population. And if the population eventually says, look, you're not protecting us, and enough people think that, which has happened in the United States, then they will push for changes. So that's there. We're having problems now with our government, which is an institution. You know, so, so maybe we need to do something about, about that, right? So within academia, which I, I think that you are focusing on, obviously, um, it, it may be that over time, if academics are producing ideas that society doesn't like, then they will bend in a different direction to ask different questions. And I think that, that's what well, happens historically. I mean, I'm not asking about whether or not society likes something. I'm asking about like whether or not the, what academia is discovering is true or not, and whether or not their methodology is correct. So it's not about like whether or not people don't like something. I guess I'm really focused on like, is something true or is it not? Not, did it come from the right person? Or does society like it? Like I'm focused on, is this accurate? After you, you determine if something is accurate, I, I always say this, other values then determine what you do. So just because something is, is actually true, that doesn't mean society is going to follow that path because they care about other things. But I do think it's important to establish what is or is not true beforehand. So I, I just want to say it's not about whether, for at least for me, because it, it seemed like you were responding to me, um, it's about what's true, not whether or not people like it or not, in terms of institutions possibly coming up with the right conclusions. I see. Well, you know, we, we've had a, a change over the past uh, 20, 25 years in um, research methodology, and a lot of people don't like it. That's that, that's that uh, critical scholarship uh, component, I would say, the last 30 right. years. Right, right. Before then, um, you know, we, we had some, some pretty standard ways that we've sort of understood over the past uh, 300 years or so since we started science uh, with a little less, uh, this process of uh, asking a hypothesis, collecting data, all that stuff. So we've been using that. And, um, right. and then um, over time, actually I think it's societal really that this change occurred in, in, the academic, in academics. There were some scholars who realized that there are some answers that we, some questions we weren't uh, getting at. Uh, like, and so they, they, they sort of over time came up with this idea that, okay, here's another way of exploring our world, you know, looking at perspective and perception and um, understanding the views of the oppressed. That has happened. Uh, academics, academia does change. How it changes, like how people on the outside can change that, that's tough. I, I, really, I really don't know. Um, I, I still think that, uh, just like with the police, there's a function for academic academics academia. And if it's not performing that function anymore, it will change. So um, you're right, it doesn't have to be whether you like something or not. But if the, pop, the academics, academia is meant to serve society. So if society feels that it's not being served, then uh, it will change. So who knows, uh, all this, uh, you know, backlash over critical scholarship, if enough people find a problem with it, uh, then um, 
then it will change. I'm, I'm quite certain of that. But right now, as it happens, a lot of people find that find the insights from that particular branch of, of academia to be beneficial. And so uh, it, it continues to be uh, a part of our lives. Okay, you just said a lot of really interesting things. So uh, the notion that, okay, first of all, you mentioned that there was a methods of doing things, which I assume you mean the scientific method in terms of collecting information and coming to conclusions about whether or not some statement is true or false and to what degree. So you come up with a hypothesis, which is the statement you want to determine is true or false, or it doesn't have to be causation, but often it's causation, like if this happens and that happens and is this true or not. Um, and that has shifted into something else, which is critical uh, race theory. So you're saying that critical race theory is another way of um, discerning information about the world versus uh, the scientific method. I'm sorry, I, I want to let you finish, but because you said a whole bunch of stuff there. And then you also mentioned that academia um, um, serves um, society, which I, that's not an idea that I have in my, my mind. So that's interesting that you said that because to me, academia is about knowledge itself. Like it's not about whether or not it's serving society. So often what comes from academia becomes useful for society. But in my head, academia doesn't exist to, uh, to serve society. So could you talk more about critical race theory as opposed to um forming hypotheses, and I think you just meant the scientific method and how it derives its uh, understanding, I guess, of the world. Okay. Um, so, all right, I'll, I'll start with a kind of broad view and then narrow it down, I guess. Uh, so there, there are really three ways of producing knowledge, uh, which one of, one of them would be a, a, a critical stance. And the, 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 the way you choose depends on the question you ask and the, the, the topic, I guess. So, so um, if, if, if you're trying to come to some kind of cause and effect, uh, you're trying to come to some universal law about society, um, then um, you're going to take that, that scientific method approach. It's going to be general, you know, uh, X and Y, and then you're going to collect data, and then you're going to do, at least in my field, you're going to collect enough cases where you can then, you know, do some kind of statistical test to see whether or not when the X and the Y changes, whether that's really happening or is it random, you know. So it's a, sort of objective science, right? Uh, you know, it's not, it's not perception based at all. The problem with that for social sciences is that people attach meanings to things which power their behavior. And those are hard to collect objectively and put into numbers. So a second branch of social science, right? So that scientific method is hard sciences and, that, and I think that's all they use as far as I know. Um, but within social sciences, you're dealing with people who are symbolic creatures, you need a second way. And anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists, they, they also use the second, it's not, it's not objective. Instead, what you're doing is you're interviewing people, you're trying to understand how they, un, how they see their world. And uh, this is through interviews, through focus groups, uh, participant observations, and there is no predictions here. It's just about understanding, and um, that's a second way. Now, those are standard, actually, and they're they're pretty uh, 
well established to the point where uh, academics know, okay, this is how we can make this knowledge reliable and valid in both in both branches. Uh, people often think that the, the people who do the qualitative research are just going out and talking to people and that's it. No, there's a whole process where they have to go back over their field notes over and over again and collect and, uh, and, re and understand things over and over again and take uh, codes and all this stuff. So there's a process to it. So those are the two. Okay. Well, um, let's say around 1960 or 1970 or so, um, you started getting people interested, and society comes in here. Um, uh, people of color started getting into uh, more ac into academia more. They became more represented, represented. And this was post-civil rights, and so race was on people's minds. Uh, and also oppression and inequality was on people's minds. Okay, so a third branch, which is that critical uh, branch, um, is not just simply trying to come to some, you know, ask a research question and come to an answer like those other two branches. Instead, it is explicitly emancipatory. It's like there is oppression and we want to deal with that oppression. So that's like the first idea with all critical scholars. You know, there is oppression, let's do something with it, okay? And then the second part of it would be whatever that oppression is, the ism, the sexism, the racism, the homophobia, whatnot, it's embedded in our institutions, right? So everything, uh, Western self, and this is what pisses people off, and, and I don't think people actually realize that's what they're mad about. But, but they're arguing, critical scholars, that things like rationality, objectivity, individualism, uh, meritocracy, all of these things, we have to examine uh, because they are producing those forms of oppression, whatever they are. And so th those are the two planks. And, and then the entire process is to look and see if and when uh, some part of Western society, or just society in general, doesn't have to be Western, is producing that inequality. So with critical social science, it's like a, it's like a melange of things. You know, they might do interviews, they might look at data, they explicitly focus on the opinions of minority groups, which again upsets people. That's the whole lived experience thing. But the idea is that those groups have been oppressed for so long, we don't know what they think. So let's let's look at them for truth, right? This 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 type of argument, and um, and that's a and that's the third approach. That approach does not do hypotheses, as far as I know. I mean, I'm kind of critical adjacent, but I do have to kind of teach the method. So um, it's not about hypotheses. It's not about just general knowledge. It's about direct knowledge to deal with oppression. So, which is comes from society. I actually don't agree with you with the. So now we're disagreeing a little bit. I think uh, I I guess we've always been disagreeing. But but this I disagree with you, because I think that uh, it, it is it is true that academia is apart from uh, society and is producing knowledge or information. I should say. But we want it to be knowledge. We want it to be useful. So um, yes, you've got this wing that's uh, basic science that you kind of just you know try and ask questions and understand things. But um, increasingly, unfortunately, uh, even that little bit of of academia is being reduced because people are like, you know, I need the I need Viagra. Can you answer this question? You know, I need the uh, uh, um, uh, COVID nineteen vaccine. You know, th these kind of directed 
scientific uh, or, or questions are, are more and more part of, part of academia. So it's hard to disentangle the two. I'm sorry, I, I kind of ramble a lot. I appreciate you letting me do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I am trying. I'm trying specifically to understand um, you. Um, okay, so you said a bunch of things. <laughs> um, I think you were first just describing qu um, quantitative methods versus qualitative methods of um, finding, answering a research question, but it's still in terms of posing hypotheses. But then you mentioned the critical race theory and the, you basically said that there is oppression is taken as a given, which I think that should be posed as a hypothetical question. Is there oppression or is there not? This is just me responding to you. I know you don't, you don't think that. And um, you also, in, you, as you were describing, you equated oppression with inequality, which I think that also should be a hypothetical question. Like, does inequality mean oppression? Because I think, I don't think it does personally, but the way you're speaking, that's, that's also taken for granted. So it, it seems to me as if critical race theory doesn't have any um, question against its very basic assumption of there is oppression. So it's not something like the sky is blue, <laughs> um, which is everyone will can argue about that, about what blue means, etc. But people can come to a consensus if they decide if they define what blue is and what is the sky, and they're gonna say the sky is blue. Versus there is oppression and inequality is oppression, which the, the first statement is there's oppression, but then as you were speaking, it was clear that inequality equals oppression. Those two statements, however, people do not agree on. And it seems as if critical race theory, it, it's like, it's, it's its own, it's self-referencing, I guess, because there's no outside thing to say whether or not its foundational axiom is true or not. And I, I mean, I don't think that makes any sense, <laughs> but that, that's what I'm hearing. Well, Ed, I, that's what I'm hearing. And then another thing that you said was, assuming that oppression exists, you want to go and talk to groups. So you're borrowing a bit, borrowing a bit from the qualitative method of research. Um, and I'm thinking in my head, you cannot know, this is my opinion, what groups think because groups don't think, individuals think, and then they make up groups. So I guess... That's just my response. You, you can respond to that. I'm expecting that you wouldn't agree with me, but that is my response to, to, uh, uh, to what you just said. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I actually, I agree with uh, all of that. In fact, most of the critiques of, of CRT have, have merit. Um, critical theory in general, and also when you focus just on race. Um, it, all of those have merit. I mean, you're right. You're assuming um, oppression. Oppression being... Um, material inequality, but also like a, a dominance of narrative or dominance of politics, all that together is a kind of oppression. So you're right, they're, they're assuming that. And um, uh, that can be a problem uh, because it, it might be that that there isn't any form of oppression going on. Um, I tend to respond to that by saying that um, as of now, in most, at least in America, and we're looking at race, it is certainly the case that there's a, a tremendous inequality. So if, if a critical scholar 
you know, starts with that assumption and then goes and tries and fix it, I don't have a problem with it. Um, um, you, you say it's self-referential. Uh, I can see that. But as long as those, uh, those facts are there, it's not that damaging. Um, um, I, I think that for me as, a, as an academic, the problem I do have with, with critical scholarship is that it's growing at the expense of those other disciplines. So it's fine to have engineers who just Sorry, want to Sorry, could you just repeat that? Um, the the video so. kind of cut out for a second. You said it's growing at the expense, and I, and I didn't hear. Just repeat that. Sorry. Okay. Actually, I'm glad I get to repeat it because I misspoke. It's growing, it's growing at the expense, not of other disciplines, but of other methods. So uh, I, I made, the, made that mistake. But yeah, that's a problem because it's okay to have someone assume we need to build missiles or build bridges, which is the equivalent of what critical scholarship is doing. They assume there's a problem, so we're going to try and fix it. Um, but you don't want to lose the physicists and the chemists who are who are asking uh, more general questions about the world, you know, and that's what social scientists often do. They ask more general questions, and so critical scholarship is kind of taking up a lot of air. So I see a lot of grad. It's, it's sexy. So a lot of graduate students are like, <laughs> oh, you know. I mean, it is. I mean, if you can write a book that people love and hate at the same time, it's going to sell. <laughs> so, so that's what happens. And um, and that's a problem because it, it might be drawing a lot of good minds away from other aspects of um, of social science. So that's so so that's a that's a, that's an issue. Um, it's not bad right now because there is at least from what I can tell, there is an, a lot of inequality. Um, which you're right, I am kind of fusing together. I, I tend to talk more about inequality than the political stuff and the, the narratives and who gets control of narratives. I don't know a lot about that, but um, so I tend to talk about the material inequality, income, right? Um, and so uh, as long as that's there, I'm okay with it. But uh, over time, I think it could be a problem. And then, then you mentioned, and I agree too about the groups. Groups don't think, <laughs> individuals do. I mean, you're absolutely uh, right about that. Um, I, I, and I, I think, I think academic I, uh, people who are doing this research, they, they kind of know that people outside of the activists tend to impose group. We're back to the beginning again. The activists tend to impose a group identity on people, but someone who's doing the scholarship, they know that. And so what they try to do is embed themselves in a large group of people and see if there's some common uh, way of thinking about the world. So you want to understand, are... wanna... oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be interrupting you, but I just want to say I agree that there are patterns um, that you can see from the individuals within within groups. So I'm sorry. Continue your thing. Yeah. No. That that's it. I mean. Yeah. I mean. Uh, uh, sometimes people do make that error. It's a fallacy. I think it's the ecological fallacy or something where they say, okay, I see these three or four black people. And so that means all black people are oppressed. No, they're not. You know, many black people are doing quite well and they don't care anything about racism is not uh, an issue. Uh, not all women are victims of sexism, you know, this type of thing. So that mistake does happen. It, it does. But within academia, um, it, it's not that big of an issue, um, which actually makes me think that, you know, a lot of the problems with critical scholarship is it can be incredibly accessible because the academics want to make it accessible. It's supposed to be practical. You know, we're dealing with something in the real world. I don't want to use no abstract terms. I want to say whiteness, right? 
because you're you're white and uh, this is what's happening in the world right now. That's good from the critical scholars perspective because, you know, they're trying to deal with something right here and right now. But then you get an activist who may not exactly understand the history of all that. And then they take it and they use it in ways that they probably shouldn't. Um, you know, oh, this is whiteness. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of guilty of that on Twitter. I use whiteness a lot. But, but an activist will use it and not understand what's going on. So just, oh, you're white. So, you know, you're, you're white fragility or white privilege or whiteness, whiteness, whiteness. That's, a, that's actually a, a, a big issue uh, with critical. So I'm, being, I'm also critical of, of a lot of critical scholarship, actually, um, for all kinds of reasons. Well, can you explain a bit more why the, that whiteness example, what's the issue there? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I agree with you, but I just want to expand on it. Okay, so if you, so, so whiteness means that there's a, one group in society, white folk tend to, tend to be predominant in many areas of society and they set the tone of that society. This is actually uncontroversial. I mean, like, like even as more uh, people of color are occupying positions, um, you can look at, uh, in the American context, a number of senators and um, uh, uh, um, uh, congressmen or women, and, and you'll see that, you know, it's obviously dominated by white folks, right? Uh, the, the number of billionaires, the, the number of politicians, the number of coaches in sports, you know, all this kind of stuff, all the, all the things. So whiteness is, is the idea that because you've got this aesthetic and broad uh, culture of whiteness, what are the implications of that? So it's not accusing white folks of anything. Um, it's not even saying that all whites are the same. It's just acknowledging this sort of obvious thing and then trying to examine what that might mean for people of color who are not white or the, or the immigrants who come in and you know, still identify as, as Filipino and how do they navigate a society where everything is about or uh, controlled by white folks. Okay, so that's whiteness in an academic sense, all right? Maybe an activist <laughs> takes that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just clear my throat. I'm listening very intently. Just continue. Okay. All right. And so, so maybe maybe a, uh, an activist takes that and says, "Huh, white folks, I, I have an axe to grind." Anyway, you know, <laughs> so I can take this and say, you know, see what this is your whiteness playing out here. You're not letting me talk because of your whiteness. You know, they can use it in ways that are just completely devoid of of uh, its actual meaning. That happens a lot because unlike unlike physics, where you don't know what the heck is going on. You can immediately make the connection. Oh, whiteness, white people. Okay, I want to talk about it, um, and and that and that that's kind of the issue. Okay, so you're saying that whiteness. Um, I'm still not really understanding what whiteness is. So you said that whiteness had to do with the amount of uh, the, the fact that white people tend to be in positions of power um, in society. Um, I did. Is that correct? Because I can you define whiteness? That's what I heard you say, but it, it seemed to be like that the term whiteness. Okay, just define whiteness. I'm not sure if I understood oh, that. Okay, I don't have a, 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 a straight definition in my head, uh, a simple one, but uh, to describe it, I could say that yeah, it's it's the it's in multicultural Western societies the fact that. If we want, we can say European Americans uh, or, or European people of European descent dominate positions of power, 
they dominate uh, the media, or at least uh, uh, they used to, that's changing. They dominate the uh, standards, they're the norm. They dominate the standards of beauty, the, the standards of how one should act in a home, in a family. And so all of these norms, values, and beliefs that represent these broad patterns of white folk are seen as the norm. And so the question mm -hmm. is, what does that mean primarily for people of color? How do they navigate that situation? But it also has implications for, for, for white folks, because it means that white folks will, all, will always think that, they're, that they don't uh, have a, uh, a group identity, that they, they don't have a race, they're just individuals. Well, yeah, they are individuals, but they have racialized patterns, right? And so in order to understand how white folks think that they're not doing anything racialized, but yet we see at a group level these racial patterns, we have to look at this idea of whiteness being the norm. You don't know you're doing things racialized when everything looks like you or, or, or people are around you are acting like or just like you uh, physically and, and somewhat culturally. Whereas me as a black person, I know, OK, I'm walking into this setting. I don't look like these folks. Um, the authority figures don't look like me. Um, my language uh, may be a little different than, there, than theirs, you know, on and on and on. And, uh, and all of these little factors show me clearly uh, that there's race going on here, right? So, hmm. so th that is something that I have thought about, but because I'm from a majority black country where there are minorities, I don't see that as a racialized issue. I see that as like, they're just a majority population. So they're going to be creating things that are, that are for what they're used to. It's just familiarity. So I guess what I'm saying is, I think that what you're describing exists, but one, I don't racialize it. I just see it as being a majority thing. And two, I don't think there's any negative intent behind it. I think it's just oh, what no. happens mm -hmm. in, a, in a society. I so I, I guess that, that's, that, that, is, that would be uh, my response. Okay, so if there's no negative intent behind it, then why is it, and maybe this is a whole activist thing again, why is it that people then... <laughs> start to say that white people, because, um, you know, there's like the theory, um, and then there's like what actually happens. Why are, there, why are there white people, say, for example, being asked to like bow at the feet of uh, black people, um, or it's mostly black people, even though it, it should represent all non-white people, uh, or that those kinds of actions should be for all um, non-white people. And, I said that there's no negative intent, I don't think, and then you agreed with that. However, there's still the whole oppression um, assumption, which assigns this moral uh, judgment against the oppressor. So I guess I'm kind of saying that I, I don't feel like what, you're, what you just said in terms of agreeing that there's no negative intent matches up with the whole oppression exists if there's inequality and in this case you're seeing the inequality in terms of the um where people are uh, in society and going off on this inequality and oppression thing further um it, there doesn't seem to be any question about whether or not um the processes that caused someone to be in a position of power or caused there to be um, uh, let's see, dominant people in positions of power 
whether or not sorry not dominant people people to dominate in positions of a specific group of people to dominate in positions of power whether or not those processes are just it's just looking at the end result and then determining that oppression existed now i think we can talk about this a bit further in terms of the intent negative intent so i do think that there is such a thing as um say network effects so someone just simply again maybe not due to any negative intent might be excluding some people from being able to occupy positions of power just because they, they literally don't know them and interact with them or sometimes it could be because they have um negative uh feelings towards a group of people so discrimination prejudice and again not always racial um and for me i think that yes those things are possible but it's always been assumed um that that is the case whereas i think that there needs to be a it needs it needs to be examined in a complicated fashion because there could be more than one factor influencing whether or not someone got to a position of power so i, I kind of just went into detail about this this specific thing but i guess the recap <laughs> to, to try and make it more clear what I'm saying. Um, the negative intent, you agreed with me that that's not necessarily true that there is a negative intent, but critical race theory assumes that there is oppression and oppression might exist, but if it's the only thing that, it, that is looked at, then you're ignoring all the other benign ways in which some people might become, um, occupy certain positions in society um and i i don't think it even has to be viewed through a, a racial lens either it's just who is the the majority so i guess if you could i'm sorry i said a lot respond to that <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay um yeah um no the intent is i mean you have it might be that the majority of folks who are doing uh, studies on whiteness are white I, I i don't think they are trying to harm themselves it's it's not the intent is not to to say that any individual white person is bad. In fact, I think what's happened is we've moved past this idea of looking for individual uh, hate-filled racists. Instead, what we do um, is we, uh, we assume that it's the patterns of society of people just being themselves, like the network effects. But because we have ideas of race in our head, that impacts the network effects. So a person, doesn't hate on the the, um, the Jamaican, the uh, Hispanic, the whatever. But because in American society, we have these ideas of who we should be friends with, that's going to push one person in the direction to being with friends with, the, or push the white person into being friends with the white, friends with another white person. And because, because of historical reasons, wealth and opportunities are, are clustered within the white population, that's going to have a negative impact on black folk uh, and people of color. And so, um, I mean, you're absolutely right that, that, that there are other things to take into account. And I think other, other scholars do. Um, I don't know to what extent uh, critical scholars, how, how much they dig into that. I know they focus more on policy. So, um, you know, I don't know. But this intent thing, it's important to realize that um, it, it's, it's just nonsensical 
to, to imagine that scholars uh, like me or actual critical scholars and white critical scholars are trying to produce knowledge and ideas to hurt themselves. They're focusing on this group level uh, dynamic and they're trying to deal with it. And uh, it is the case that maybe some activist or someone online, you know, just takes the bullet points from whiteness, you know, or white privilege, you know, or something like that, or even white fragility, any of these, you know, white buzzwords. If you take them, they'll take them and then they'll use them online uh, or maybe in an everyday context in the wrong way. Um, and, you know, what 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 can you what can you do about that? Really? I mean, it happens both ways. This thing. I mean, you have people who have very reasonable anti-woke takes uh, as maybe you do. OK, but then you get someone who extracts a bullet point, you know, and and. <laughs> And use it and uses it in a negative way at me. It doesn't happen that much, but I'm just trying to make an analogy here to what what happens. So, um, the questions you're asking are wonderful, and I'll go back to what I said earlier about there needs to be a balance within academia. Um, it it should be a collective enterprise within the social sciences to ask ask many different questions, um, even conservative questions, uh, questions about culture. We don't do that. Um, I think that there's nothing wrong with saying that, okay, yes, this, this is me now talking, uh, you know, my, my own personal theory about racism. At an ultimate level uh, and across generations, if you really want to deal with uh, differences in income and education and all that stuff, you have to say that it is racist, uh, the society is racist, and that you have to deal with policies to, to uh, uh, change those differences in outcomes. But that doesn't mean that within a particular generation, within a particular family, people can't change their behaviors and, and improve their situation in life. I did. So it would be nice if social scientists ask those specific questions, uh, and we don't. And so then what happens is, you know, someone's working for some conservative think tank and writes an essay about it, and that becomes our understanding. Uh, which I think is, as I've said earlier, I think is a problem. But um, so, yeah, the questions you're asking are, are great, uh, Desiree. I, don't, I was going to say miss something, but I don't know your last name. So you, so the, the questions are, are, are fine and valid. The problem I have is when people think those questions mean that what CRT is doing is not valuable. That's not it. Uh, you ask a question and that means you expand the thing. You don't necessarily throw it in the trash can, you know. All right. Uh, what keeps happening is that you, you say a lot and I have so much that I want to say, but I have to, right, the whole, the main purpose is to, to get you to, to, to express yourself so that I can understand more, more so than necessarily responding to everything you've said. Um, I uh, do um, want to say that you said that scholars might not have a certain intention of um, individual white people being accused, but that is exactly what happens. Um, and I'm not sure that you can put people into groups in that way in order to frame the group as the oppressor um, without then implicitly accusing the individuals. I, I don't think that's possible. Um, and then I just want to point out um because i mentioned the network effects network effects and then you mentioned wealth being clustered 
I don't believe that because some group of people have wealth, that means that another group of people is locked out of wealth. So that, that's just an a assumption that people, <laughs> some people make and some people don't. So um, I guess this is a, a part of the, I don't see the world as like a, a pie, um, which I think is how most of us are raised to see the world. And then some people get some, and then if some people get this bunch, then nobody else can do it. Like I, I think that wealth is created from people providing value uh, to each other. Um, so like while there can be inequality, like I don't think because some people have wealth, that means like it was taken. And the, the way you were describing just because some people have wealth in society means that um, that negatively affects black people. I don't agree with that. What I do agree with is like things that have happened in the past in the US and probably still happen elsewhere in the world where black people may have created wealth and then that was like actually taken from them uh, because some people didn't like it. That is, I think, directly like taking wealth away from someone. But just some people having wealth I don't think that that means that that negatively affects um, the people who don't have wealth. But that's that's a whole mindset framework, how you look at the world kind of thing. Um, time is going. So I, I really thank you for <laughs> um, answering some of these very basic questions I had, which is just like the whole assumption of the oppression versus inequality. Um, it is what I thought. <laughs> um, but you you explained it to me and um you are definitely the kind of person that I would want to be hearing it from because you're nice when you're saying it um even though I don't I don't agree it's, it's good to be able to like actually have the conversation uh, with I someone uh, other um, people are yelling at you I guess when you oppression doesn't equal inequality by the way it, it, it doesn't oppression is inequality is a form of oppression but what are people yelling at you I mean they shouldn't be yelling I mean you <laughs> Well, you said I'm you nice said, in speaking about this, which I'm like, well, what what would be the alternative? Um, you know, I don't think everyone can have a conversation uh, without it turning to to turn into a debate. Um, I do think that you were using oppression and inequality interchangeably, um, and maybe it isn't, but that's not how I heard the words being used as you were describing how critical. Um, Erase theory works. Okay. Um, uh, let me just see. I haven't actually gotten into any of my specific specific questions because I was trying to understand like how you derived your knowledge, which is probably the most important thing uh, to understand. Um, so there was something that you... This is one of the questions that someone asked on Twitter and you responded to. So someone had asked, how do you reconcile a system of white supremacy or systemic racism when the largest number, not percentage, of Americans who suffer from poverty, homelessness, food deserts, bad schools, teen pregnancy, and so on are white? And then you said, those are good questions. I would start by saying they do not have to be uh, reconciled. They coexist and answer different questions about society. And I'm saying... I, I agree with what you guys both, the question and the answer. Um, and if they coexist, maybe you're going to say that you don't do this and that that's not the intent of critical race scholars, but this is what happens. If these, 
you can say white supremacy exists while at the same time a large number of Americans um, are white who suffer from poverty, homelessness, etc. And they answer different questions in society. Then why is it the focus only on answering one question about race in society? Because that's what actually happens, even if that might not be what critical race scholars intend. So there may be other issues than race, and you're both agreeing there, but the question and the, the person who asks the question and you answering, but what ends up happening is that it all boils down to race. So like if you're looking as an example with the, the COVID-19 stuff, they're trying to make disseminating the vaccines about race and diversity. When, and that seems to be happening everywhere in society where everything is being boiled down to race, even though that's only one way of examining uh, things. Um, so yeah, um, a, a critical race scholar will focus on race because that's their raison d'etre as it is. Um, if if uh, an economic uh, an economist may focus on um, uh, the, the economy and explaining how poverty has led to an increased deaths of, of COVID. So that's, that's not a problem in itself. The problem is one, critical race theory takes up a lot of air in society. And two, people are responding to it in that way, right? And so they, they imagine that they've reduced all of this um, activity, academic activity down to uh, uh, critical race theory. Um, I don't blame them. I mean, if that's what everyone's talking about, then that's what you're going to think it's all about. But um, no, um, it shouldn't be that way uh, at all. Um, that, that person asked one of those questions that, just like I told you earlier, those are good questions. That doesn't that doesn't mean that you throw away something. It just means that, okay, now you have new questions to ask, you know, which I'm concerned about um, poverty among white folks. I think it's one of the generators of some of the problems in America. I can be concerned about that and also be concerned about police brutality among black folk, right? So it doesn't have to be, they're not mutually exclusive. Okay. Uh, well, I have to end soon. Um, so a couple more questions. What do you, what would you say, going off of what you just said, in terms of multiple questions and not just having one, uh, one theory dominate the conversation, the, the entirety of the societal conversation, what would you say is a path forward in a multi-ethnic and multi-racial uh, society? If it's not just the whole CRT stuff, which is only one aspect of Wait, looking I'm at society. I'm I'll just repeat. Okay. Yeah, I'm saying based off of going off of what you just said in terms of you can be concerned about one thing, um, say police brutality with black Americans or black people in America, and also about poverty among white people. Um, but critical race theory takes up a lot of air, so only one thing actually gets focused on. What would you say is the path forward in a multi-ethnic and multiracial society um, if it's not what's going on now, which is everything with critical race theory dominating uh, everything? I see. Well, um, time uh, is important. I mean, um, I can remember a time when we didn't talk about race that much uh, that was this is in the 80s and 90s. And if you talked about it, it was in, you know, black people were discussed in negative ways. So this just might be a time 
where we are addressing those concerns. And so that means that as time passes, other things will come up. Um, people often ask me, what are the benefits of CRT? And I'll talk about, you know, the passing of laws, you know, with, with uh, policing and whatnot, dealing with lending discrimination, blah, blah, blah. But one thing I always point out is the centering of non-white folks in American society. This has been, at least to me, symbolically beneficial, not materially beneficial, but symbolically. I mean, I, I like to see that people are out talking about things that um, um, other black folk have been talking about for a long time, like the police brutality, um, the microaggressions in the workplace. These are conversations black folk have been having forever. So it's nice that those are out there. My guess is these things run out of energy, though. They run out of steam. And um, I guess the way forward, this may not really be answering your question, is to let this play out. Deal with it. People aren't, academia can come up with any kind of idea they want. But if people don't believe that it resonates in their life, it doesn't matter. I know this because I've written a book that no one read. <laughs> no one cared. <laughs> so these, these ideas mean something because people can go, oh, yeah, yeah. You know? And so once you kind of get through that, um, over time, people just move on to other issues like economic inequality, which I think is a big thing, um, at least in the United States right now. Or going to be. Okay. Okay, and then kind of a might seem out of the blue question is, do you think that um, in the sense that white privilege exists, not the exact same way, but uh, in terms of the way you could say that white privilege exists, do you think that black privilege exists <laughs> in American society? Oh, these kind of questions. I mean, yeah, sure, in localized spaces, uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't have to, but, but I mean, okay, at a group level, no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't really exist. Um, black people do have a a symbolic import because of slavery and because of Jim Crow, because these obvious injustices. So when a black person stands up and says, I'm going to talk to you about race, people are listening. So maybe that's, that's a, a kind of a privilege. Maybe in localized settings, there's a privilege. I don't worry about walking down the street. Nobody's going to mess with me, okay? I'm sure that's racial in a bad way, but it's it's racial, right? I don't have to worry about that. No one's going <laughs> to, oh, wow. no one's going to, no one's going to, I mean, that's just, that's just the case. No one's going to think that I'm a pushover because they imagine that black people are very aggressive. That That's a, that's a bad thing maybe to say, but that's a way of having privilege. Just like saying you can play sports or something. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. So, so these kinds of uh, privileges exist, but at a, national level, forget it, forget it. If I walk into a um, place for employment and there is no like diversity thing going on and a hundred of me walk in and a hundred thads walk in uh, with nice spiky hair, I'm sorry, 70 thads are gonna get the job, 30 of me are gonna get the job with the same resume. We, we've seen this over and over again. So, so at that national level, forget it. There's no, there's no white privilege, but yeah, in some localized specialized parts of society, yes, there can be black privilege. Or China, or Asian privilege, like like my like my wife. I'm sure she got her job because they thought she was smart. So it's, it's because Asians are supposedly good at math, you know, this kind of thing like that, you know. So you're describing economic privilege specifically when you when you talk about privilege. Beauty privilege as well. Question. Say that again. Beauty privilege, status privilege. You know, people want to live where white folks live because they assume that those are the best neighborhoods, even if the the economic uh, incomes of families in those neighborhoods are the same, people imagine that the white neighborhood is better. 
Um, I mean, there's just privilege all around. You go to the, uh, you know, you we look at the sentencing rates of um, of white and black for the same crimes, and we see that white folk uh, tend to get lesser sentences. Um, that's actually changing, which is nice. It's one of the benefits of critical race theory, but or of, of critical social science in general. But for a long time, forget it. You know, black folks are getting um, um, uh, death penalties at much higher rates. Uh, as far as I know, for the same crime as white folk. And it's like, what the heck is going on? It's the same with men, by the way. We have to deal with that as well. Uh, men get harsher sentences for the same crime as women. But, um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I can't decide if it's worth it to, to like, respond um, or, or not. You have some good <laughs> ideas. I mean, I, I like to hear what you have to say, actually, so... Well, I'm thinking the, the the whole concept of privilege doesn't make sense to me because everyone has it in some degree or another, depending on what factor you're looking at. So there's no point in even like saying the word because it's like everybody has it to some degree or another. So I guess that's just that's just one point. Um, and um, you know, these are just the, the conversations you, you see go on, like, online all the time. If you're looking at, for example, the differences in sentences, are you sure that you're accounting for all the variables that are present? Because every single time that I look, um, it seems as if something is not being accounted for. Um, and then, you know, you're, the, another issue that I find with... Um, this way of looking at the world that you have is, I mean, this is, this is perfect for me because I'm not from here. So I, people don't understand this, but I didn't, and I don't sometimes, but not as much as I used to see people based on their race. I just didn't like really focus on it. Like I noticed it, but then it's not a big deal. You're saying just now you were saying that people might assume that you're not aggressive. Um, sorry that you are aggressive because you're black um, but I think that you are you are assuming that other people assume that about you I'm now, being, being, Maybe. <laughs> well being in yeah. American society um, I do think that happens like I <laughs> there is someone who I was having a discussion with on Twitter um, like I think racism exists in that way like people do do that however I don't think you can always assume that that is the case. Right. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's yeah, just the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just as someone who is not, you know, from here, um, I feel like there is no place for someone, and lots of, lots of immigrants come to America who doesn't even have these ideas of focusing on people in terms of race to not do that. <laughs> like because it's like you have to do it in order to like exist in American life, and it's it's like, do you actually want this to to stop or or not? <laughs> yeah, I I think uh, if I may be positive, um, I, I read this book like ten years ago from someone from Jamaica who went to college in Colorado, and he was pointing out something that you you're pointing out. It's like, why is everything racialized here? You know, there's black folks sitting here and white folks sitting here. And he was saying something similar to you that, look, this makes no sense to me. Yeah, I see the skin color, but all of these other behaviors that to me shouldn't be racialized are. 
Like even the, so this is in the 90s. Even the music was, there's black music and then there's white music. There's black food and there was white food. Like what the heck is that about? And so it might be thinking positively, like more people like you who uh, question these assumptions. Um, and maybe as uh, more, you know, we were in this kind of, you know, nice networked environment and we get to hear different perspectives, you know, we'll kind of open things up a little bit so that we don't have those stereotypes. Um, my job as a scholar is to examine them as they are now, but that doesn't mean that people can't comment on them and push our ideas in different directions so that we don't have to worry about it so much. Um, so, I mean, that's a good thing. You should continue to um, question what's going on in the world. Uh, there's a benefit in it. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm just... Um... I want to let you go, but I'm just checking my notes and there's one thing I didn't ask you about, which I want to ask you about. Can I go ahead and ask you looking at the time? Okay, sure. Um, this thing about words and uh, violence, because this was something that we had uh, uh, debated somewhat on Twitter. So, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> <laughs> this is another 30 minutes. So for those who are listening to this, you might edit this out, but if she doesn't edit this, edit this out, she promised me this would be uh, an hour and a half conversation. We're at an hour and 38 minutes. I can't trust you anymore. Just in an hour, an hour and a half, I realize you're not trustworthy. Oh, I'm messing okay. with you. Go ahead. That, tell, that's tell a me, good tell joke. Me, <laughs> tell me the, tell me the, tell um, me the words are I'm biased. Just trying to res I'm trying to respect your time. So, um, yeah, so from speaking to you online, it seems as if you conflate words as a harmful um, to the point of violence. That's and right. to me, right, I think words can be harmful. They can really hurt your feelings. We are very emotions-based. I recommend anyone who is struggling in life to deal with their emotions first. Like people have an impact on you, etc. However, that is very different in my mind from physical uh, violence. And I think that if you're people who think like you, I guess, are going to co-opt, in my opinion, the word violence to also include non-physical violence, then there needs to be a distinction for physical violence because they, they are very, in my mind, different things. And so what say you to that? They are different, but you've given the distinction, physical violence, sexual violence, um, symbolic violence, if you want to call it that, that's fine. Um, I recognize that people don't see violence or words as violence. I, I know that, and, and but still, and yet, I want to equate the two. But there's a reason for that. Um, so the harms that come with repeated symbolic violence, maybe we'll, we'll say that, um, can be equal or greater to a lot of the harms that come with physical violence. Obviously, if you shoot someone, that's the greatest harm, and kill them, that's the greatest harm of all. But, um, I mean, look, you know, you punch someone in the face versus a husband berating a wife for three years. What is going to have more harm? And so the reason why I, I want to make it clear that, it's, that words are violence is because at least in American society, we have this idea of sticks and stones and break your bones, so just be tough and be strong and all that stuff. Instead of looking at it accurately and saying, look, this is hurtful, 
And so, yeah, you need to develop some resilience, but we got to go after this person who's who's hurling these negative things at you, right? And and I don't think we're doing that enough. And so that's why I, I say words are violence. Not just me, but other people, but I, I guess I'm the one that you saw, so. No, I've seen other people say too, but um, I mean, it's still, I'm still, I mean, it's, I guess it's good for you to, to just restate or say what you think. Um, why use the word violence when that word initially has certain connotations? Why not just say harmful? Why, why use a word that has very specific imagery associated in terms of the destructiveness physically? Because I think that in using the word violence, it's trying to add something that is not there. Um, when it's emotional um, harm. Ah, uh, yeah, emotional. That's better. Instead of symbolic violence, emotional violence. Well, look, I mean, if people don't like that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I. you mentioned the connotations that go with violence. That is probably why people actually use it, because they want to make it clear that the harms that come from words can be equally as damaging as the harms that can come from fists. Uh, and so that is probably the rationale. That's, that's my rationale um, for equating the two, so. But it's a, it's a different kind of harm. So it's a different kind of damage. And like that distinction, you know, like I think the words, you know, should have meaning. And if people have a, a specific meaning attached to something, and you're changing the definition of that, a word, that word for you, um, then, well, first of all, you can't even have a conversation very easily because your people are talking about different things. Um, but then also, then it, I think there should be a, a different word made that has a definition of the word as it originally had meaning for people who speak that language. Yeah, that's a that's a a fine uh, counter argument. Who knows? I mean, these things evolve. So if it happens that you know someone coins a term or puts two words together uh, to equal something new that encompasses the the hurt and harm that goes with words, then that may be what what happens. Um, um, I am fine right now saying it. I don't think it messes up conversation. I, I'm not sure about that. I think people, when I say, okay, uh, words are violence and this is why, da 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 I mean, they, they get what I'm saying. Um, so I'm not sure if that's a problem with conversation, but I do understand that, yes, you could lose the meaning of actual physical violence if you equate it with um, um, symbolic violence. I mean, I, I, I do that a lot, though. I mean, I've been... I've been talking about this idea of uh, scientific fascism and people are like, what are you talking about, Ron? This makes no sense. You're deflating the term, the, the meaning of fascism when you're applying it to, to science. So, I mean, I, I get it. I'm not even disagreeing with you here. Um, I'm just taking a different view, I guess. So, with the, I mean, I wasn't going to talk about it, but the scientific fascism thing, you would explain that similarly to how you just explained the use of the word violence in terms of the effects, the negative effects can be about the same, so you might as well use that word to convey that the effect is similar. 
Um, similarly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the phenomenon of um, people using science to oppress people is very similar to the phenomenon of, of people using politics uh, to oppress people. Um, they they kind of go together. So, yeah, yeah, I guess so. All right. I, I'm okay, not I even think I, people who disagree with that, actually. I mean, I get their points. I just still think that I want to use those terms. So I'm not entirely sure. I mean, if someone comes up with something better, I'll, I'll use it, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I disagree, but it, like I said, it's very useful to, to hear, hear you explain. Um, there's one more question, even though I already said it was yes, one more question. Okay. Okay. Um, was this idea of, uh, why don't you like meritocracy or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you seem to have some issue with, um, meritocracy. Could you expand on that oh yeah so over the past so i i think in in most western societies we're having a a rise in populism and a lot of it is because you have people who are working class who cannot get jobs with dignity anymore and we have this belief in society that everything that you should get be should be because of your your merit what you've earned and that has been fused with college credentials. So if you get a college degree, you know, you earn that college degree and you go out and you get a job, that's it, you know. That idea is nice to tell kids, uh, young people, because obviously, you know, you have to go out and try and be what you want. But the reality of things in modern Western societies is that people are going to get left behind for a lot of reasons. Everyone can't get a college degree. Everyone's not cut out for a college degree. Jobs uh, that used to be in uh, Western countries are not there anymore. And so instead of making this stable uh, income, you're getting, you know, you're barely getting by. And the people who are going through this, they still have in their mind this idea of merit meritocracy. So they think they've failed and they have it. They've just lived. Mm. And so we have to start critiquing. Now I'm being a critical scholar. We have to start critiquing <laughs> this idea of meritocracy so that we can open up a space to provide some kind of government support for people who just get left behind. It's really bad in the United States. I mean, the, the safety net is hardly anything. People actually think you need to earn your health care. What is that about? I, I don't think you have to earn that just by having a good job. <laughs> like, come on. I mean, th these kinds of things are very damaging in the 21st century, and we have to do something about it. And it starts with the idea of meritocracy. Okay. Um, why can't the idea of meritocracy exist while acknowledging that people are being left behind? Because I, uh, I agree with you. I actually um, somewhat live in an area where I see that. Um, and I think it's an issue, but I wouldn't agree on, on um, discrediting the idea of meritocracy in order to make that statement that it's not necessarily your fault. So I would say that I would put responsibility on someone to change their situation, but I wouldn't say it's their fault that they're out of a job in the first place because society is advancing technolo technologically, for example. Um, so why do you have to discredit meritocracy in order to want to help people who are left behind and recognize that they're being left behind 
initially at least, not through their own fault. Yeah. No, I don't want to discredit it. I think that we need it in a capitalist society. And I mean, come on, people do earn stuff. I mean, you know, some people go out and, and work hard to achieve things. So we don't want to say that, you know, you should not try and do that. But we're so focused on merit. Everything is about getting a college degree and somehow that's going to be the be all and end all. And, and everyone's trying to work 60 hours to buy the nice big house and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just wanting to critique the idea and get it to the point where we can include these very important human things. I mean, people need dignity. Um, if, 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 we don't, if we don't critique the idea and open up a space where we can have both merit and like a social safety net in the same conversation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm being very US centric here. In other countries, it's not as bad. But if we don't, if we don't have this conversation, our system is going to get worse and worse. You're going to have more people voting for a lunatic because they think the lunatic is going to help them. And they, and they, they, they don't understand that, that the, or they may understand. I, I don't want to put, you know, assume that they don't know what they're doing. But they're, they're angry at something while agreeing with the idea of meritocracy. They're angry at not having a job. They're angry at not making as much as uh, their forefathers, not being able to take care of their kids. But instead of placing the blame on this system that assumes that everyone has to go off and get a college degree and that's going to solve things magically, instead of focusing on that, they're focusing on, oh, you know, um, you know, actually, I don't know what the heck they're doing, uh, the, the, the Trump uh, um, supporters, you know, they're all over the place. But, I, but if we can just open up that space, not dismantle it, not discredit it, but just kind of nuance it a little bit, I think that's, I think that's necessary. For our democracy. Okay. okay. All right. I am going to um, end the conversation here just because, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah. Um, I've been standing for an hour and a half. I'm ready to sit down and, and, and relax. And, you know, I enjoy this conversation. I'm just goofing. I'm, I'm just a go uh, goofy person. So. Oh, that, that's great. I think it was incredibly useful um, for um, understanding your perspective. I am... Still disagreeing, but I'm also understanding that some of the disagreement is, uh, how do you put it, how you define words, for example. And it's also useful, I think, to see the person behind um, the comments and the statements and the ideas you don't like, because I think it is very detrimental uh, for society, uh, how, we, how we, we just interact with people online and I, I think that changes the, the way you you perceive like them <laughs> I, I think it's not good like, I guess social media in terms of um seeing someone as a full person and not just like someone you attack online even if even if you strongly very strongly disagree with what they're saying I, I think it, it it helps to hear them um express themselves so Thank you for your time. I'm sure the comments are going to be very, very interesting um, okay. on this interview. And um, yeah, do uh, you want to let people know where to find you? Just, just something people do when they come on the show, like on your Twitter or your website or anything like that. Okay, yeah. Well, first, thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, um, uh, so yeah, this has been wonderful. And um, I think you should, should have more of these conversations, really. So, um, yeah, 
My website is uh, RoderickGram.com, R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M.com. Or I'm just on Twitter at Roderick Graham, um, either one. I have a, a YouTube channel that I've been um, started as a channel for my class. And now I'm trying to just, just have these kinds of conversations as well. Uh, and so uh, if you YouTube my name, uh, search my name, search my name on YouTube, you'll, you'll find my channel. All right. Well, thank you everyone also for tuning in. I hope that you have a good day. I'll talk to you soon. Definitely let us know uh, what you think. And maybe if you have follow-up questions, you can find Rod and ask him, or maybe there might be another conversation at another time. Bye.